Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour. My name is Susan Shirey. This is a weekly program bringing you news from a variety of sources. This one is being recorded on the 31st of December, New Year's Eve, for the listening week that begins the 1st. And actually, we don't have too many articles related to the New Year this year, but I'll start with the one that is here. This comes from TheRoot.com. It's written by J.L. New Year Real You. New Year's resolutions are hard to keep up with, so this year, why not resolve to be free of the pressure to reinvent ourselves? It's approaching the time of the year when millions of us are consumed with crafting some well-intentioned New Year's resolutions. Perhaps the same one for the fifth year in a row, or maybe that's just me. But before you dive headfirst into fashioning this New Year, New You version of yourself, I have some advice. Don't. Instead, let's go into the next year and beyond free of the pressure to reinvent ourselves. In 2022, it's New Year Real You, because purposefully choosing to be our real selves is probably one of the healthiest decisions we can ever make. New Year's resolutions are the binge diets of the self-care world. They often grow like noxious weeds year after year, reminding us of their failed existence. Just the thought of starting year three of a pandemic, trying to muster the energy to reinvent myself makes me guffaw. Who has energy for that? And we shouldn't feel bad about it. With the little energy we do have, pardon me, is that where it should really go? The last two years have taught us a lot, each our own lessons, but a common thread for many of us, for millions of us, is that we're tired. Actually pause right now and let your shoulders sink. Exhale, drink some water. You're tired, I'm tired. And here's something incredibly groundbreaking you might need to hear. That is okay. Pumping your brakes on that overzealous list as you step into next year will just might be the most self-caring decision you've made all year. I say this because I find many New Year's resolutions are bred by external pressures we internalize, hyper-focusing on our shortcomings under the veil of self-care. And if you're like me and millions of others, they're hard to keep up with. Those well-meaning, tall-order promises we make to ourselves often leave us feeling more stressed and ashamed, which is, ironically, the antithesis of self-care. I'm not suggesting that pursuing that runner's body you've always dreamed of is a terrible idea. Go run like someone is chasing you at 7 o'clock in the morning if the mood strikes you. Just make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. There's nothing wrong with self-improvement being on the agenda. I simply suggest we reframe this idea that each year we need to continue to make a greater version of ourselves. Imagine if we entered the new year focused on the good things about ourselves instead of the ways we feel 
like we've fallen short. How girding would that be for our overworked, desperately exhausted, pandemic-fatigued minds for our mental health? As you have probably surmised by now, the root of my issue with New Year's resolutions isn't the, with the resolution itself, but with the motivations often hiding behind them. I am a fiction author by trade, and in my latest novel, Ashes of Gold, I worked purposefully to pin a heroine who is learning she is worthy of love, her own, and others. If we've learned anything in the last two years, it's that life is short, time is precious. Do we really want to spend the time we have striving to become something we think we need to be? Committed to loving a future version of ourselves. What if, instead, we realize we are worthy of that love right now? I'd like to believe loving ourselves well is the worthiest goal. If exercising more falls under that umbrella, go right ahead. But if your idea of a New Year's resolution is hyper-focusing on all the ways you don't measure up, feel unworthy, or don't fit into some idealistic version of the you you think you're supposed to be, then stop. Only you can know what your true motivations are, so do some heart and soul searching. Be kind to yourself and understand I'm talking to myself here, too. For those of us who jump on the resolution hamster wheel each year, we're equally used to eventually letting them go, promising ourselves next year, next year, I'll be thinner next year, I'll get that promotion next year, I'll start writing that book next year, next year, next year. We are so conditioned to living in the future, have we forgotten to live in the present? And what are we sacrificing when it becomes a habit? What am I advocating for here? Contentment is a big piece, but let me be super clear, because that word can be slung around like perfumed mud. I don't mean settling, lacking ambition, ignoring the desire to improve. I simply mean if the root of your lofty New Year, New You endeavors is a lack of feeling worthy. Take a deep breath and make not a 20, 22 about looking yourself in the mirror and loving what you see, right where you are. Don't wait to grow into being worthy of self-love. You are worth it right now. Next, the piece that gives us a review that's on offer also from TheRoot.com. This is written by Glenda Carr. After an historic 2021 in politics, black women are gearing up for what promises to be a monumental 2022. From Kamala Harris to Stacey Abrams, black women are poised for increased representation at every level of elected, pardon me, elected representation. At the start of 2021, our country made a major historic political stride with Kamala Harris when she was sworn in as the first black and Asian woman vice president. As millions watched on TV and in person, we were reminded of how far we've come in the political landscape, but also how far we must go. The 2020 election was significant for black women's representation in Congress and executive office. Yet, with Vice President Harris's ascension, there is no longer any black woman represent representation in the U.S. Senate. This absence is alarming. 
especially when black women have proven time and time again that we are the pardon me that we are one of the largest voting blocks in this country over the last year black women in politics have secured significant wins on the state and federal levels in 2021 we saw major cities elect their first black women mayors Tashara Jones was elected as the first black woman mayor of St. Louis. Elaine O'Neill became the first black woman mayor in Durham, North Carolina. And Jim Janey became Boston's first black woman mayor of the city during a vacancy in the office of mayor. And although we have yet to have a black woman serve as governor, there are a record number of black women running for governor in at least five states, including Georgia, South Carolina, Massachusetts, and Iowa. Recently, when Stacey Abrams announced her campaign to run again to become the next governor of Georgia, the announcement was met with much enthusiasm, demonstrating that next year there is an opportunity to not only elect the first black woman governor, but to potentially have a cohort of black women governors ready to serve simultaneously. 2022 is shaping up to be at another historic year in part because of the collective power black women have harnessed over recent elections. These women bring diverse experiences and deep knowledge of underrepresented communities that could help positively transform the states they are vying to lead. In 2021, the advances made by black women were not just about elections. It was also about governance and having voices in the correct positions to see the changes we want to see in our communities. Issues spanning from criminal justice, economic security, voting rights, gun safety, and climate change are at the top of mind for black women voters. And electing those that can sit at tables to impact the policy outcomes on these key issues is what we saw happen in 2021. While black women running for office have seen advances in cities on the state level, we have also seen much progress on the federal level. Vice President Harris has not only helped sell the bipartisan infrastructure bill and pass it, but she also helped shape the substance of the legislation. The vice president played a lead role in getting Americans vaccinated and helping our economy grow again. This year, we also saw how powerful the Congressional Black Caucus, CBC, women truly are, especially those who were pivotal in orchestrating many of this year's most significant legislative wins. The women of the CBC prioritized funding for historically black colleges and universities and increased child tax credit, affordable housing, universal child care and pre-K, and Medicare expansions as well as job creation, cutting taxes, and lowering costs for working families. Congresswoman Lauren Underwood, Illinois, 14 District, who serves on the House Committee on Veterans Affairs and the House Committee on Appropriations, successfully got her first bill passed. The Protecting Moms Who Served Act is one of 12 bills from Representative Underwood's Black Maternal Health Momnibus Package. Protecting Moms Who Served Act will allocate $15 million to help improve Veterans Affairs facilities. 
In December, Representatives Underwood, Alma Adams, and Robin Kelly joined Vice President Kamala Harris for the first-ever White House Maternal Health Day of Action. This year, we also saw Texas Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lees from Texas District 18 push to make Juneteenth a federal holiday, was successful, and was signed into law. The women of the CBC went above and beyond the call of duty, and we thank them. The Biden-Harris administration is one of the most diverse in our country's history, including the confirmation of Marsha Fudge as U.S. Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. Linda Smith-Greenfield became the United States Ambassador to the United Nations. Kristen Clark was appointed Assistant Attorney General for the Civil Rights Division, and Cecilia Rouse became the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors. These women are all following in the steps of the great Shirley Chisholm. While wins have had this year on many issues, I think that we should say while wins have been had this year on many issues, we also saw the underside of politics and how certain politicians insist on blocking many citizens from the fundamental right to vote. The barriers that exist when it comes to voting in this country go against everything the Constitution stands for. Despite this barrier, we're still committed, now more than ever. In August, Representative Terry Sewell, Alabama District 7, introduced the landmark Voting Rights Act, named after the late Georgia Congressman and Civil Rights Leader John Lewis, who died last year. The act seeks to restore a vital provision of the federal law that compelled states with a history of discrimination to undergo a federal review of changes to voting and elections. Our fight on this crucial issue will continue in 2022 as advocates put increasing pressure on the Senate to pass the legislation to protect our right to vote. 2021 left us much to be proud of and 2022 is shaping up to be the year in which we will see even more breakthroughs for black women seeking elected office at all levels. We have a unique chance to support this positive shift and give Americans elected officials who won't leave behind any individuals. Black women have proven themselves at the polls, on the trail, in office, and behind the scenes of democracy. Now it's time to support volunteer, and donate to these candidates who are prepared to continue leading this country to higher heights. In 2022, black women leaders will continue to fight for the issues most important to our communities. We will support them, and they will continue to prove that black women are truly the architects and defenders of our democracy. A note on this author, Glenda Carr is president and CEO Higher Heights for America, the only national organization providing black women with a political home exclusively dedicated to harnessing their power to expand black women's elected representation and voting participation and advance progressive policies. We'll follow that, pardon me, we'll follow that with a short article on Stacey Abrams. Um, written by Marjani Rawls. It was posted on the 21st of December. Stacey Abrams sets sights on Georgia governor race, but first she calls for national voting rights action. 
Before Abrams' 2022 campaign, the Georgia governor hopeful makes a push for voter protections. To say that Georgia's role in shaping the 2020 election and the overall makeup of Congress itself would be an understatement. Georgia organizations like Stacey Abrams' Fair Fight, the New Georgia Project, and Georgia Fund helped push the state blue. The state also won two Senate seats for representatives Reverend Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff. Without that slim majority for Democrats, the American Rescue Plan most likely wouldn't have passed, leaving small businesses and families struggling. Black voter turnout was vital in these victories, but since then we've been staring down the threats of Republican opposition in Congress, lack of movement with voting rights legislation, and an onslaught of voting restricted pardon me, voting restricting laws passed on the state levels, including right in Georgia, where that Governor Brian Kemp signed back in March. It's a funny coincidence that black people use their right to vote and all of a sudden this care for, quote, election integrity comes up. Stacey Abrams announced that she will be running for governor for a second time in 2022. In an interview with the Associated Press, Abrams reiterated how crucial passing laws protecting the right to vote would be. She said, starting in January, when legislators come back into session in 2022, we're going to see a maelstrom of voter suppression laws. I understand the resistance to completely dismantling the filibuster, but I do believe there's a way to restore the Senate to a working body so that things like defending democracy can actually take place. It would be smart to heed Abrams' call. Abrams only lost by about 55,000 votes to Kemp in their first governor election head-to-head in 2018. Now, listen to a couple of new items in the Georgia bill and tell me who it will hurt the most. 1. Sharply limit the use of ballot drop boxes. 2. Other than poll workers, it criminalizes giving out food and water to people in long lines. And 3. Extend voter ID requirements to absentee ballots. Abrams further outlined her wishes for Georgia in this quote, This is a state that is on the cusp of greatness. But we have high income inequality, we have low graduation rates relative to our capacity, we have a broken public health infrastructure system, but we also have the ability, if we had good leadership, to invest in our communities, in all of our communities across the state. Governor Kemp tried to explain the new law away in an 11-minute bit of word salad. Georgia has changed considerably from four years ago, and given her contributions in fighting voter suppression, it would be a damn shame if these same things kept Abrams from gaining the governorship in Georgia. Inaction would be a terrible message to black women across the country who continue to form and power these progressive movements for change. Still, I'm reading from TheRoot.com, our next article, News Flash. There's... A lot of racism in the military. New reporting shows that the Pentagon has failed to solve the problem for decades. This is written by Keith Reed. Remember all those folks who swore Colin Kaepernick disrespected the military by taking a knee in defiance of racism? 
We'd love to know how they feel about this report, which spells out how military officials at the highest levels have tried and failed for years to eliminate racism from the U.S. armed forces. The Associated Press wrapped up an investigation looking at efforts the Department of Defense has taken to address bigotry in the ranks of the country's fighting men and women. That includes, as AP wrote, Defense Secretary Austin Lloyd, who is black, taking, quote, the unprecedented step of signing a memo directing commanding officers across the military to institute a one-day stand-down to address extremism within the nation's armed forces. Apparently that step, nor the decades of others taken by the Pentagon to address racism, hasn't changed anything. Here's a quote from the AP. But an AP investigation found that despite the new rules, racism and extremism remain an ongoing concern in the military. The investigation shows the new guidelines do not address ongoing disparities in military justice under the Uniform Code of Military Justice, the legal code that governs the U.S. Armed Forces. Numerous studies, including a report last year from the Government Accountability Office, show black and Hispanic service members were disproportionately investigated and court-martialed. A recent Naval postgraduate school study found that black Marines were convicted and punished at courts-martials at a rate five times higher than other races across the Marine Corps. The AP investigation also shows the military's judicial system has no explicit category for bias-motivated crimes, something the federal government, at least in 46 states and the District of Columbia, all have on the books, making it difficult to quantify crimes prompted by prejudice. As a result, investigative agencies such as the Naval Criminal Investigative Service or Army Criminal Investigative Division also don't have a specific hate crime category, which impacts how they investigate cases. End quote. There may not have been a more damning report on military racism since Furious Styles told Trey that a black man has no place in the white man's army. Next, also written by Keith Reed. What doesn't Inglewood want you to know about its cops? Police departments nationwide are hiding records of police misconduct. This was posted on the 30th. The city of Inglewood, California, is arguing in court for the right to destroy records that could shed light on misconduct in its police department. On January 1st, a new law takes effect in California expanding how long police departments have to keep files on cops' behavior and what the departments have to make public. In the meantime, the ACLU has been fighting to gain access to use-of-force reports and other data from the department since 2019. Now, the Los Angeles Times reports that a judge issued a temporary order banning the Inglewood Police Department from destroying any records. As per the LA Times, the ruling comes three years after the city was thrown into controversy over its handling of law enforcement documents. In late 2018, the city of Inglewood destroyed hundreds of police records in the weeks before Senate Bill 1421 went into effect. The law expanded public access to police use of force, misconduct, and disciplinary records for departments across the state, 
Critics argued Inglewood sought to destroy years of investigative records involving police dating back to 1991, just ahead of the new law, a claim that city leaders rejected. This premise that there was an intent to beat the clock is ridiculous, said Inglewood Mayor James T. Butts, Jr. at one time. Since 2019, the Inglewood Police Department has not produced a single document under SB 1421, according to the American Civil Liberties Union of Southern California, in a lawsuit filed December 23rd. On December 14th, the Inglewood City Council adopted a resolution to purge more police records, including all internal affairs investigations dated through December 31st, 2016, and all use-of-force reports and pursuit reviews dated from December 31st, 2019. Police departments around the country are notorious for skirting open records laws, potentially keeping the public from knowing which officers have patterns of dangerous behavior. Dozens of departments in New York State, for example, didn't respond to a newspaper's request for cops' disciplinary records, even after the state of New York changed the law in 2020 to require disclosure. New Hampshire just opened its so-called lorry list of cops with questionable credibility to the public on Wednesday. Such lists are important because prosecutors could be required to disclose cops' records of dishonesty or misconduct to defendants. A reporter in Oklahoma had to call a legal hotline for help getting police records on a shooting death by the Glenpool Police Department after the department denied an open records request for documents. The victim's family had been given no information by the department. Not to be outdone, the L.A. County Sheriff's Department hid a list of deputies with histories of misconduct, even after the California Supreme Court ordered them to release the information. That list was finally made public this year under the same law that Inglewood police have been trying to get around, and the information on it is nothing short of ugly. For a change of tone, our next article, still reading from theroot.com. This one's written by Noah A. McGee. Black-owned hospice in Nashville brings comfort to grieving black families. Heart and Soul Hospice is focused on helping the dying loved ones of black families. The name is fitting, Heart and Soul Hospice. The new hospice agency in Nashville wants to improve the comfort of families at the end of a loved one's life, according to NPR. What's unique about it? The people who own and operate the hospice agency have the same cultural identity as the people they are trying to serve, according to NPR. In other words, they're black. This quote from NPR in their application to obtain a certificate of need in Tennessee, the hospice owners made it clear that they are black and that they intend to serve everyone, but will focus on African Americans who are currently underserved. Tennessee data show that in Nashville, just 19% of the hospice patients are black, though they make up 27% of the population. Though the area already has numerous hospice agencies, 
Regulators granted the permission based primarily on the value of educating an underserved group. National data shows black Medicare patients and their families are not making the move to comfort care as often as white patients are. Roughly 41% of black Medicare beneficiaries who died in 2019 were enrolled in hospice compared with white patients for whom that figure is 54%, according to data compiled annually by the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization. One of the black caregivers who was hesitant to make the move to hospice care was Mary Murphy, who was the primary caretaker of her husband, Willie, and her mother before that. Her mother suffered from dementia, and so Murphy felt like she was giving up on her mother when transitioning her to hospice. Even though hospice is meant to give palliative care to those who are dying and help the caregiver for as long as possible, Murphy did most of the caregiving and it took a toll on her. Eventually, hospice was able to be a major help, according to NPR. When Willie, her husband, was dying, she embraced hospice once more. Willie died a day after Thanksgiving this year, and the hospice nurse who gave her emotional support when her mother died was there when Willie stopped breathing. Another quote from NPR, If you don't feel like, oh my God, thank God I have hospice, if you can't say that, then we're doing something wrong, says Keisha Mason, pardon me who is Heart and Soul's Director of Nursing. Mason, like Murphy, is black and says that in her view, there's nothing fundamentally, nothing fundamental keeping black patients from using hospice except learning what the service can offer and that it's basically free to patients, paid for by Medicare, Medicaid, and most private health plans. She says, I say to them, if you see a bill, then call us, because you should not. As Mason has helped launch this new hospice agency, she's begun using new language, calling hospice more than a Medicare benefit. She describes it as an entitlement. Some of the investors and founders of Heart and Soul Hospice are David Turner, owner of CNS Hospice in Detroit, Nashville Pastor, the Reverend Sandy McLean, Andre Lee, who is former hospital administrator on the campus of Nashville's Meharry Medical College and HBCU. Lee and Turner are also the founders of a hospice in Michigan that focuses on black patients, and they plan to open other hospices across the country that model after heart and soul. And NPR has another quote. Lee says more families need to consider home hospice as an alternative for end-of-life care. Nursing homes are pricey, and even with Medicare, a hospital bill could be hefty. You'll go in there and they'll eat you alive, he says. I hate to say something bad about hospitals, but it's true. Hospice research hasn't come up with clear reasons why there's a gap between white and black families' use of the benefit. Some speculate it's related to spiritual beliefs and widespread mistrust in the medical system due to decades of discrimination. The Hospice Industries National Trade Group, the NHCPO, released a diversity and inclusion toolkit and a guide for how to reach more black patients this year. 
It recommends connecting with influential DJs and partnering with black pastors and also just hiring more black nurses. Our next article, another political piece. This written by Marjani Rawls, posted the 30th. Representative Bonnie Watson Coleman gives support continuing the at-home confinement provision done by the CARES Act. The Congresswoman noted rehabilitation and the ongoing pandemic for lower-level offenders. As of right now, almost half of the prison population is comprised of those found guilty of drug offenses. A total of 51% of inmates are at a minimum or low-security prison. Given the ongoing COVID-19 outbreaks occurring in places such as Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and New York, it makes sense to have some home confinement system. Through the CARES Act in April 2020, eligible inmates served their sentences at home with parameters and guidelines given the pandemic. That provision was due to expire as per a memo by the Trump administration, which stated that all inmates in the program had to return to prison. Just last week, Attorney General Merrick Garland announced a reversal to that. There is one congressional representative that is also on board with these changes. U.S. Representative Bonnie Coleman Watson spoke to The Hill and agreed with Garland's decision, and she said, We knew this even before the pandemic, but the pandemic required us to act in a different way. She added, one of the results of the pandemic was to try to de-incarcerate those individuals who were not a harm to society, who were low-level offenders, and to get them out of the prison system because of the threat of the pandemic. The Congresswoman also said that the entire criminal justice system is ripe for the kind of review into having someone pay for whatever infraction it is that they are accused of and convicted of, while also considering rehabilitation and providing a second chance. This week, the head of NYC Corrections said that 17% of prisoners were positive for COVID-19. That's not just bad for the prisoners. Everyone who works there has a higher chance of getting infected and bringing it home. It makes sense not only from a prison overcrowding solution, but for public health reasons to keep this system going. We have a real chance of updating our prison dynamics in America, other than just throwing low-level offenders in a cell and forgetting about them. Even Garland himself echoes those sentiments. He says, thousands of people on home confinement have reconnected with their families, have found gainful employment, and have followed the rules. Garland continued, we will exercise our authority so that those who have made rehabilitative progress and complied with the conditions of home confinement and who are in the interest of justice should be given an opportunity to continue transitioning back to society, not necessarily returned to prison. Our next article is from the Washington Post, the memoriam for someone who passed this December. Greg Tate showed me what being a writer in America could mean. This is written by Kevin Powell. 
You do not have to be famous or a best-selling or award-winning writer to influence multiple generations of singers, rappers, musicians, filmmakers, journalists, cultural critics, visual artists, public intellectuals, poets, dancers, DJs, novelists, playwrights, politicians, community activists, and multimedia content creators of all colors and identities. You just have to be Greg Tate. Arguably the best American writer and thinker of the past 40 years. Easily one of the greatest wordsmiths we've ever been blessed to have. This is why I pushed my phone away in horror when I received a text on Tuesday that my former Vibe magazine editor Ron Kinner that read, Greg Tate, R.I.P., this is why I hyperventilated and cried in disbelief on the phone with Joan Morgan, a fellow writer, when she confirmed it was true. Greg Tate had died at age 64. I don't remember if I read uh, aloud the date this was written. This was posted on December 8th. Continuing. I had seen Greg a month ago at a crowded and very lit New York City art opening for Radcliffe Bailey, he greeted me as he always did with a firm, pardon me, with a from the gut up shout of KP. He was wearing a mask, a trademark hat, and a variety of colorful fabrics wrapped around his plump frame like the sacred garments worn by a priest. And he was there by himself, as he often was, lurking on the edges of the event, shy in a crowd despite his warmth with those he knew. Sometimes his eyes met yours. Sometimes they did not. We spoke about the new autobiography of his late mother, civil rights pioneer Florence Tate, and the possibility of my interviewing him for my forthcoming biography of Tupac Shakur. Greg is widely considered one of the godfathers of hip-hop journalism, among many other accolades, because of his prolific coverage of the culture from the early 1980s forward, just as rap was becoming a cultural juggernaut. We agreed I would email him to arrange that interview. I never got to send that email. I cannot recall when I first met Greg Tate or how or where, but I do know, as a ridiculously young writer in the late 1980s, I found my way to the pages of The Village Voice and to his byline. The first piece I read was Tate on the legendary painter John Michel Basquat, in 1989, it was titled, Nobody Loves a Genius Child, in a nod to a poem by Langston Hughes. The ones who keep up the good fight with a centella of sanity, Greg wrote, are the ones who know how to beat the devil out of a dollar while maintaining a black agenda and to keep an ear out for the next dope house party set to go down in Brooklyn, Sugar Hill, or the Boogie Down Bronx. His words were hypnotic, and they lit my brain like a fuse. Greg was writing, with unparalleled honesty, about the perils and pitfalls of fame and its toll on the black mind and the black body. He was also showing me the possibilities of what a writer could do and be. Poet, cultural curator, memory keeper, visionary, and unapologetic truth-teller for the people. From then on, I digested everything Greg Tate penned, including his earlier work, and to this day I thumb through his writings for inspiration. 
When I was a cast member on the very first season of MTV's The Real World in 1992, in my hands was Greg Tate's first book and collection of essays, Flyboy in the Buttermilk, during one of the many heated arguments about race and racism. He wrote powerfully not just about race, but also sexism, about homophobia, about anti-Semitism, about hate in all forms. I mean, it was mad bold for Tate to take on Public Enemy and its landmark album, It Takes a Nation of Millions, regarded by many as the Sgt. Peppers of hip-hop. Greg wrote, P.E. wants to reconvene the black power movement with hip-hop as the medium. From the albums and interviews the program involves rabble-rousing rage, radical aesthetics, and bootstrap capitalism, as well as a revival of the old movement's less-than-humane tendencies, revolutionary suicide, misogyny, gay-bashing, Jew-baiting, and the castigation of the white man as a genetic miscreant, or, per Elijah Muhammad's infamous myth of Yaqub, a grafted devil. End quote. Never have I read a man other than James Baldwin who was so unafraid to challenge both white and black America and the messy madness of race in this country. Other than the autobiography of Malcolm X, never have I read work by a man, any man, who not only made me think new ideas, but who made me feel transformed, like my very life had been saved. As someone raised by a single mother, I hungered for new definitions of manhood, and Greg was giving it to me without my even realizing it. That is why I am mourning the loss of this hugely influential writer who moved from his native Ohio to Washington, D.C. in the early 1970s, who grew up on everything from Motown, The Beatles and Led Zeppelin, to D.C., Go-Go, Early Punk, and Hip-Hop, and comic books and science fiction, too, cementing his stature as a game-changing ink-slinger with his uncanny gift to turn a missive about an album, a film, a scene, about anything into a master class on the craft of being a writer steeped in the improvisational traditions of Negro spirituals, jazz, and a black mama singing alone in her bedroom. Because Greg Tate was brave, free, and unapologetic—pardon me, I'll try that again—because Greg Tate was brave, free, and unapologetically black, because Greg was hip, hip-hop, and a hippie, and Greg was American-made in every sense of the phrase, like his artistic heroes Miles Davis and Amiri Baraka, like all black music, which is undoubtedly American music. For sure his words could reach the bourgeois and rock the boulevard, because Greg blurred and burned class lines every chance he got. For sure he was one of the many black men sitting on sagging milk crates on a street corner in Anywhere America, woke to the daily news and woke to the ways of his hood, and able to flip that wisdom into observations and wordplay as genius as Joan Didion, Norman Mailer, Joni Mitchell, Smokey Robinson, Nicky Giovanni, or Bob Dylan. That is why he mattered even in his final years. Be it his work as a musician with his funk fusion band Burnt Sugar, his nearly 40 years with the Black Rock Coalition, of which he was a co-founder, or his insights into Kendrick Lamar. 
Because Greg Tate never stopped creating and fighting, because he never stopped dreaming, in the form of words strung together like a Pablo Neruda poem of love, of his vision for a future, he will not get to see himself. Next, I'm going to jump to a December 20th edition of the Boulder Daily Camera. This is being recorded in Boulder, Colorado. This was written by Saja Hindi. Originally, it was written for the Denver Post, it says here. From their section titled Faces of the Front Range. Colorado Springs midwife advocates for black mothers and their babies. The first time Demetra Sariki attended a birth in a hospital, she was 16 years old. She didn't know then what a midwife was, at least not until a doctor at Memorial Hospital Central in Colorado Springs suggested she would make a good one after he began to periodically see her accompany friends to the births of their babies. Sariki remembers going home, grabbing a dictionary to figure out what a midwife was, and researching what they do. Midwives are trained to provide medical care for mostly healthy people before, during, and after delivery. There are different types of midwives, and they play a separate role than doulas, who provide support and comfort during childbirth but cannot deliver babies. But Sariki was young and had a child, so even though she was interested in midwifery, midwifery, I've heard it pronounced both ways, she went into a medical, oh, pardon me, she went into medical management. Still, she said, the flame has been there. This Colorado Springs native had started multiple businesses with her husband and worked several jobs, but when her five kids got older, she decided to go back to school at age 33 and in 2015 became a certified professional midwife in Colorado. She has a practice in Colorado Springs, and 99% of her clients are people of color, and about 1% are LGBTQ. Sariki's patients come in for prenatal and postpartum care, and she facilitates home births. Six years after becoming certified, she continues to be the state's only black certified professional midwife, the first and only since the profession gained re legal recognition in Colorado in 1993, she said. While there have been some black certified nurse midwives in the state, they are able to prescribe more medications to patients, including birth control, and get trained in a hospital setting. She said they often leave by their second or third year. So, Sariki is studying to become one herself. She said, when you are cared for by a provider who looks like you, you don't need to explain your essence. You don't need to explain your reason and your why. There is a commonality that is understood, and you get to show up as your authentic self. That means patients don't have to code switch. Rather, they can converse in a way that's most comfortable for them with Sariki, whom they affectionately call Mimi. She can have hard conversations with them, and there's a mutual level of respect that may not happen otherwise, she added. At her clinic, a mother's choice midwifery, on a Wednesday in early October... That trust was apparent. Clients came in and discussed details of their lives with her that they likely wouldn't at a regular doctor's visit. They talked about their kids, their partners, their latest projects. If you're working for an integrated health care system, 
You can't focus on a relationship and build trust because you have to see so many people in those 10 to 15 minute visits. So it makes it really difficult, said Sariki. When Sariki tells a patient that she needs to increase her intake of liquids to avoid dehydration, or that she has gone through a lot of trauma and should consider therapy, or more recently, how the COVID-19 vaccine could help protect her and the baby she's carrying. Oh, pardon me, the baby she's nursing. Then they take it to heart when she empathizes with the struggles of a single mom and parental leave policies or recommends getting a prescription for birth control from a doctor, they hear her. Sherilyn Davis, who had a prenatal appointment for her sixth child, said having Sariki as her midwife for her fifth child made the experience much better. She said she's learned a lot from Sariki, who, unlike in hospitals she's been to, trusts a woman to know her own body. She's my auntie. I'm never going away, said Davis, laughing. Sariki often has to advocate for her patients when they need more specialized care. She pushes for her clients to be taken seriously, their wishes heard, and she works to bring issues of black maternal health to the forefront of policy discussions. Her website has a section called Why Race Matters. Sariki recalls a situation last year where she couldn't get someone admitted to a hospital who had preeclampsia, a hypertension disorder that causes serious pregnancy complications. The patient was sent back home multiple times despite worsening symptoms at 38 weeks of pregnancy. It's really dangerous, and preeclampsia is one of those three top reasons that black women die in pregnancy or postpartum, said Sariki. When the patient's blood pressure skyrocketed and she began to have tunnel vision and see yellow and red, the hospital finally admitted her. The obstetrician apologized and told Sariki they would review what happened. But Sariki said it happens regularly to black women, and even in this patient's case, it would happen again when she contracted COVID-19 days after having her baby. This year, Sariki helped pass a pack pardon me, pass a package of maternal health laws, and she's working with lawmakers and health care regulators on a new bill to allow certified professional midwives to get compensated by Medicaid, something other states already do. What I learned out of this session was legislators did not see the correlation, she said. They were like, well, everybody has a choice. They can just go see an OB and that's, and take Oh, pardon me. They can just go see an OB that takes Medicaid and they wouldn't have to pay you and you wouldn't have this problem. And I'm like, but is it safe? Is it equitable? Demetra Sariki attends to Nia Treach as she nurses her five-week-old son, Ray Jones, at A Mother's Choice in Colorado Springs on October 6th in the picture they've provided here. Sariki is the only black professional midwife in the state of Colorado. Sariki is devoted to helping underserved communities in Colorado Springs. Many of her patients are people of color or part of the LGBTQ community. I just realized now that that is the caption underneath the photo of her with her patient and the child. Once again, in case anyone listening is in the Colorado Springs area, her clinic is called A Mother's Choice. 
Next and possibly final offering for this week is coming from TheRoot.com. It is written by Maisha Kai. New Day's Lyric. Amanda Gorman releases an inspiring ode to the new year. The young poet laureate and best-selling author launched her latest poem via a short film released exclusively on Instagram. To say Amanda Gorman has had a big year would be an understatement. In January, America's first Youth Poet Laureate took the dais and stole the show at Joe Biden's presidential inauguration with her poem, The Hill We Climb. But that was just the beginning. Within a week, she was signed by IMG Models and confirmed to recite an original piece at Super Bowl. Next, <laughs> Gorman then kicked off Black History Month as the cover star for Time Magazine's Black Renaissance issue. In March, her inaugural poem became an instant number one New York Times and USA Today bestseller. In May, Gorman helped welcome back the Met Gala as one of its confirmed co-chairs. A week before the September gala, she was named a global changemaker for legacy cosmetics brand Estee Lauder. A week after, she released her first children's book and second bestseller called Change Sings, a children's anthem. As December dawned, Gorman scored a trifecta, earning her third instant bestseller with Call Us What We Carry, Poems. But ahead of the new year, the prolific poet has bestowed another gift upon her now expansive fan base, releasing her latest poem, New Day's Lyric, exclusively on Instagram. Per a press release to The Root, we have the ethereal and inspiring poem captures 2021 in verses that reflect on the lessons the year taught us, the importance of community, and the hopeful future we await. Styled by Jason Bolden in a white, one-shouldered gown on Bai Kong Tree, with her braids elegantly styled in an updo by Malika Palmer, Gorman reminds us why she instantly captured America's attention as she gives an evocative performance of her newest work. Gorman explained the poem's inspiration on Instagram also, which she said, I wrote a New Day's lyric both to celebrate the new year and honor both the hurt and the humanity of the last one. To pay my words forward, I'm raising funds for the International Rescue Committee, IRC, res at rescued.org whose response to the coronavirus pandemic and humanitarian crisis provide life-saving programs to vulnerable communities worldwide. Instagram has already pledged $50,000. Let's take donations even higher. You can give at the link and or share the fundraiser. Even a little goes a long way. I'm always shy to quote my own poems, but I believe it in my bones when I say, come, look up with kindness yet. For wherever we come together, we will forever overcome. As noted, New Day's Lyric will raise money for humanitarian aid organization, the International Rescue Committee, to help aid those affected by the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. Instagram parent company Meta is also donating $50,000 to the organization. 
And that brings me to the end of our time for this week. Thank you for joining us. This was the Black Experience Hour. Please tune in to all of our programs.